Hi, and welcome to the Peak Endurance Podcast. My name is Isabel Ross, and I'm the coach at Peak Endurance Coaching. Episode 80 is another interview with the brilliant author Matt Fitzgerald. Last time I interviewed him, we talked about his book 8020, which discusses the concept of running easy for 80% of your training and hard for 20%. This interview this time focuses on another of his books, the very popular How Bad Do You Want It? I bought this a long time ago and loved it. I've reread it a few times. This book is all about the mindset required for running well. Are injuries or persistent niggles ruining your enjoyment of running and hindering your performance? Get on top of these now so that you can get back to the pure joy that is running. Come in and see the specialists at Health and High Performance where they utilise the latest in technology and experience to help you get back to your running best. Head to healthhp.com.au forward slash run to book an appointment and get back to feeling how good it feels to run without pain or discomfort. You can of course also find them on Instagram, Health High Performance. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast. I really appreciate the people who take the couple of minutes out of their day to get onto Apple Podcasts to rate and review. I read all of the reviews and they sure do inspire me to keep working hard on this. Thanks so much. If you enjoy this episode, please do go over and rate and review. I am aiming for 100 reviews by Easter next year. Will you help me achieve my goal? I don't know about you but I'm already planning the races I want to do in the quickly approaching new year. If you are too, email me, isabel at peakendurancecoaching.com.au to organise an individualised training plan. Enjoy the interview with Matt. Hi, Matt, and welcome back to the Peak Endurance Podcast. It's great to be back. Excellent. So I um, personally myself, I have, I'm sure many of your listeners have, read your book, How Bad Do You Want It?, which is all about mastering the psychology of mind over muscle. What prompted you to write that book? Um, Well, as any endurance athlete uh, can tell you, um, you know, the mind plays a a huge role in endurance sports. Um, I started running when I was just a a schoolboy and that was, I remember I describe it in the book, my, my first, you know, long distance running experience. And um, to me, it was just shocking the kind of discomfort uh, and suffering I experienced. I mean, running was running. Every kid is familiar with that. But trying to run fast over an extended mm. distance is, is very different. And um, I was really blown away by how painful it was. And ever since then, I have felt that um, that, you know, the ability to handle that discomfort and then the other mental challenges that come with being an endurance athlete, you know, in both in the training and, and, and the competition um, can be decisive in terms of how much you enjoy the sport, how much you improve, how competitive you are. Um, and, and, and it's, it's become a fertile time in terms of the research, the science, um, um, you know, psychologists and neuroscientists and others are exploring, um, you know, what is it, why, why is it so challenging? You know, what's going on inside our skulls that, that, uh, you know, that makes endurance um, competition unique, you know, different from golf and any other sport. And also what are the factors that, that make, you know, the uh, extremely mentally fit athletes different from people like the athlete I was. I just also describe it in the book. I, I was a classic head case, as they say in, in high school. I was, you know, 
you know, the, the mental game was my weakness initially. And so, you know, what, why are some athletes, you know, naturals in that regard? And how do you develop those qualities if you aren't born with them? And, and I wonder, are we ever really born with them? Well, you know, I would say some more than others, clearly. And, 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 there's, and there's some science, you know, I mean, it's a very interesting, I mean, certainly I would say none of us has ever, all, it, it's a lot like physical talent, you know, you know, some people are born with more than others, but everyone can get better. Yeah. And I think that's true on the mental side. The example I often give when, when people you know, make that point is, for example, there's research showing that um, anxiety, uh, you know, a tendency toward what they call trait anxiety. Anyone can feel anxious in a moment, but some people have anxiety as a trait. Um, and, and that is partly genetically rooted. So you can be born with a, just being, have a, having a predisposition toward anxiety and anxiety is known to be performance hindering. So if you're, you know, just someone who had, you know, the luck of the draw and was born with some of those genes, you know, you might not ever be the mentally fittest endurance athlete on the planet. Okay. But you know, none of us is the physically most talented athlete on the planet. <laughs> well, one no person way. is, yeah. you know what I mean? So that, yeah. I per, that's where I prefer to keep the focus. And, and I, I present myself as an example, a, a, you know, a case in point, because as I said, I was a head case. I don't think I did really have uh, I mean, maybe I didn't give myself another enough credit because looking back, I, I feel like I, I was holding myself to a high standard and that's part of the reason I saw myself as uh, a coward. <laughs> um, but, but I'm also, without question, I have improved greatly in that regard. Um, so, you know, if I can, I, I think any athlete who sets their mind to it also can. Yep, yep. And, and your book certainly helps with that. So as I said earlier, before we started recording, I thought I'd, you know, I have some questions basically from each chapter, which gives the listeners a bit of an idea. Um, so the first chapter was, you know, you talk about a race is like a firewalk. What, what does that mean? Yeah, I like that, that firewalk metaphor for, that encapsulates the mental dimension of mm. the challenge of, of endurance racing. Um, and the idea is this, you know, just imagine a, a bed of hot coals. I've actually never done a fire walk, so this is all <laughs> theoretical for me. But imagine a, a bed of hot coals, um, and of course, walking on it is uncomfortable. Um, and it'll, but it, it doesn't go on forever. It has a finite length. And at the end of that um, bed of coals is, you know, kind of a, a wall that represents, and that wall represents your absolute physical limit. Um, so when you get to that wall, you, there's no more room for you to improve physically. And so a race is like you start off at, at the far end of that, of that bed of hot coals and you start walking toward that wall. And the closer you get to the wall, representing your ultimate physical limit, which is what we all want, right? You know, if we're committed to the sport, um, you know, to fulfill our potential, the more uncomfortable it becomes. And what, what this, um, it, it, in, in the book, I focus on uh, what's known as the uh, psychobiological model of endurance performance developed by a scientist named uh, Samuela Marcora and, and others. And according to that model, which I believe is essentially true, um, everyone jumps off that bed of hot coals at some point before they reach the wall. Um, in other words, what the research is showing is that the limits we actually encounter as, as endurance athletes are psychological, not physical. Those physical limits do exist, but we're actually not capable of reaching them because we always encounter a, a psychological limit first. Um, 
Is that and, like the you know, central governor? It's different. Those are sort of competing theories. I mean, they have a certain degree of agree agreement. Um, so, you know, Timothy Noakes, uh, South African, a legendary South African exercise physiologist, he was the first, um, you know, scientist of note to really embrace the idea that the brain is where it's at <laughs> in endurance sports. And he developed, you know, this, excuse me, central governor theory. Um, that one is more, um, it's more rooted in the idea that um, there are automatic uh, triggers that, that prevent us. Um, uh, so the idea is that your brain on a, on a mostly subconscious level is constantly receiving signals from your body during exercise yeah. and your body sort of letting your brain know whether there's any danger, you know, whether you're, because in, in principle, you could exercise yourself to death mm. if there were no protective mechanisms, right? Um, you could overheat or you could like completely run out of glucose and just kind of keel over, <laughs> um, whatever. Um, and, but that never happens, right? Or almost never happens. And, and so Tim Noakes, his idea was that well, our brains just sort of shut down. They stop, they stop firing our muscles when, when the warning signals from the muscles or other, other organs say, we're too close to a limit, you gotta shut it down. The Samuel Marcora's competing theory is that, you know, that's too, that theory is a little, is too clever by half. And what's really going on is we just voluntarily <laughs> slow down or stop. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, um, you know, you don't need that central governor to really explain something that, you know, uh, you know, a 10 year old could say, well, no, I just quit because it hurt yeah. too much. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that's fair enough. So is that um, when you talk about the 30 second reserve, what, what's, can you explain that one? Yeah. So, I mean, t take running as an example, you know, a, a r running is, uh, you know, it could be sprinting, right? You know, very short races. Uh, but at some point, when you increase the, di the distance of a race, um, there's a transition where you're going, you're no longer sprinting and you're, um, you're, you're in endurance racing now. Mm. Um, and so where, what is the dividing line? Like what, what actually makes the difference? Um, and, and what it appears to be, you know, according to, to the science, is that, um, there's a certain there's a certain duration for which you can sustain an all-out effort, um, and it's actually not very long. Like even in like a hundred meter sprint, athletes are slowing down involuntarily uh, because there's just and that's purely physiological. Uh, but if you go a little bit beyond that, then you get to the point where um, still like you know any sprinter will tell you, well, I'm trying as hard as I can. I may be slowing down, but it truly is involuntary. You know. Mm they're still running as fast as they can in the last 10 meters, but they're, they're just, their bodies can't do it anymore. But when you get to longer races, say, you know, to go back to the track and running like 400 meters, 500, 600 meters, you get to a point where actually, if you want to get to the finish line in the least amount of time possible, you can't run as fast as you can at the start. You, you have to, so the, the difference maker, what separates a sprint from an endurance race is pacing. Yep. where you actually have to intentionally hold back. The goal is the same. It's still to get the, to the finish line in the least amount of time possible. But strategically, it's, there's, a, there's a crucial difference, which is that, that pacing factor. Um, and, 
And what's uh, some clever, uh, I, I describe in the book a, a cleverly designed study that just, sh that showed where that threshold is, where they, they had people sprint for 15, 30, or 45 seconds. And, but some, but they, um, they uh, in some cases, they told them they were sprinting a different distance than they actually were. Um, but what they found is that, no, that, that's, that's not what it was. They were told to try as hard as they could uh, it's been a while since I wrote the book. So I'm a fuzzy on a few things. But what it was is that it was the sprints were 15, 30, and 45 seconds. And they were told to go all out, to, to not pace themselves, no matter, regardless of the distance or the duration, rather, of the sprint. And what they found was even when, when they were doing the 45-second sprint, when, when the runners were, they were still told to go all out, when measurements of their muscle activity found that they actually were holding back at the beginning. Mm. Like they almost couldn't even help it because they knew it was 45 seconds. They knew they couldn't sustain a lot of effort for 45 seconds. So um, that's the idea there. I mean, you know, it's going to be different for different individuals, but somewhere in that like, you know, 30 to 45 second area, there's that, that transition is going to occur where um, you're going to have to hold back to get to the finish line as fast as possible. Yep. And that's fair enough. Um, in uh, the chapter Brace Yourself, you talk about always expecting your next race to be your hardest yet. Why is this a good strategy? Yeah, I mean, even non-athletes are familiar with, you know, the psychological coping mechanism of bracing for a painful or uncomfortable or challenging experience. Um, you know, what, what you're really doing in your mind in those moments is that you're, you're consciously accepting that whatever it is you're going to do is going to suck. <laughs> <laughs> and it sounds a lot like pe pessimism, right? You know, it's mm. like, oh, I just believe it's going to rain tomorrow. <laughs> um, but the thing is, like, if it really is going to rain tomorrow, isn't it better to know, you know, and to accept yeah. it so you can, you can prepare? And it's the same thing with any type of experience that is, that is going to be painful or in, like, you know, in the example of an, an endurance race, you're going to experience high levels of discomfort. I mean, if you really race the event and, and try as hard as you can. Um, and what research has shown, you know, um, what is actually perceived effort, um, that, that's, that's the, the essence of the type of suffering, the, the flavor of suffering we experience as endurance athlete is psychologists refer to it as uh, perception of effort. Uh, it's often in colloquial, colloquially, we often use the word pain to describe it, but but psychologists and, and, and neuroscientists, they make a distinction. Pain is one thing, perceived effort is another. They're similar, but they're not exactly the same. But, but a lot of the research that applies to endurance sports and perceived effort is done in, with pain because they do bear a family resemblance mm -hmm. and pain, it's a little easier to study. But what studies of, uh, on pain have shown is that when people brace themselves for a painful stimulus, it's not that they feel it less, but they can tolerate it more. Um, so the opposite of bracing yourself is kind of like denial or just, you know, wishful thinking or magical thinking where you're just, you just sort of, you, you foolishly hope it's not going to hurt, even though you have every reason to believe like, well, it hurt last time. I'm about to do it, do it again. Maybe it won't hurt this time. Well, that's not. <laughs> and, and um and there there's research also not a lot but a little bit with in, in the endurance space as well to show um that if you they'll have the help psychologists do a little intervention with people uh to to train them in basically bracing themselves in accepting 
uh, you know, the discomfort that's going to be inevitable. And, and one, one study I'm thinking of that uh, people who are actually physically untrained, it was done in sedentary people, they experienced, I think it was like a 15% increase in performance in time to exhaustion without any physical exercise, just by receiving this training in what, what is known as acceptance and commitment theory. So being trained to brace themselves. Yeah. Um, I mean, that, that really in a nutshell shows you how powerful the mind is because you can, get, you, can get, you can get better at endurance without doing any endurance training at all. Sounds perfect. <laughs> <laughs> um, now you also talk about time being on our side. What is the importance of that? Well, yeah, that's, uh, that's my chapter on um, Greg LeMond. Uh, I focus yeah. on, so in, in each chapter of this book, I tell a story um, yes. uh, about um, a real, usually household name, but not always, um, like a, a, a top endurance athlete who experienced some challenge that was, you know, psychological in nature, or, you know, in Greg LeMond's case, he was he, he had a hunting accident. He almost died. <laughs> um, so that's physical. But I mean, obviously, there, there's a psychological component to, you know, mm. to having to come back from that kind of uh, setback. Excuse me. Um, and in the, uh, yeah, so Greg LeMond had won the Tour de France in, in uh, 1986. And then he had this hunting accident. And then he comes back. And then in 1989, he has a big showdown with uh, Laurent Fignon. And it comes down to the final time trial on the final day. Um, and, you know, LeMond is behind and he has to really pull a rabbit out of a, out of a hat in order to make up. Um, he's just about a minute behind uh, Fignon. He has to make up that difference and not a lot of time. So he has to ride the time trial of his life. But it's all mathematical, like, right? He, he knows how much he has to outride Fignon by. He knows. Um, the distance he has to cover about how long it's going to take and about how fast he has to go. So all of these numbers, he actually just uses to his advantage. Um, and in, in that chapter, I get uh, into the research on, on goal setting mm -hmm. and you know, goal achievement. And, and what it shows is that, because really, you know, I, I'm, I often say the purpose of, of a goal is not to achieve it. It's, a goal's purpose is to get the best out of yourself. So whether you actually technically achieve a goal or not, if you can look back and say, hey, by trying, by at least trying to achieve that goal, I couldn't have done any better. Like that's what you want to be able to say afterward. Um, and what the research has shown is that to get the best out of yourself, the goal you set has to be barely achievable. Like it, ha it has to be achievable. You, you can't, I mean, there are no real miracles in endurance sports. Um, it, it has to be something that really physically you're capable of doing, but you're going to stretch yourself the most if it's not easy, you know, and in fact, it's very, very hard. So you have to believe you can do it, um, but you have to know you're going to have to turn yourself inside out. And that's exactly the situation Greg LeMond was in. Uh, spoiler alert, he ended up, you know, winning that tour by eight seconds. <laughs> uh, you know, I think it was the closest finish ever. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that's a, a chapter that, you know, so time is on your side is like, you know, you, you don't want to become like too dependent. Like you see a lot of athletes who are like device dependent these days and they stop listening to the bodies. Oh, that's a crutch, not a tool, mm. but you know, objective feedback can be, can be a tool. If you, if you, you know, stay in the driver's seat and control that data, 
you can use that those metrics to set goals that really stretch yourself to to fulfill your potential. Mm, I like it that they should be barely achievable. Um, <clears throat> in the chapter, The Art of Letting Go, you say that self-consciousness increases perceived effort and reduces endurance performance. So how can we avoid this if we are self-conscious? Right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously um, you are, it's impossible to be 100% non-self-conscious. Yeah. <laughs> like to have like zero awareness, even of your own body, that would be yeah. weird. But yeah, that's 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 obviously not really the goal, um, but there are degrees of self-consciousness. So, so that chapter is really about the phenomenon of choking, um, which is you know like underachievement uh, in in competition. And choking is usually you know if you if two if you two athletes are just talking about it, they'll they'll usually attribute choking to pressure, right? Um, you, you feel the pressure and it makes you underperform. But that is true, but it's actually the mechanism is self-consciousness. It's the perceived pressure heightens self-consciousness and that's what causes you to underperform because it makes you do, it makes you overthink things that you normally are able to do kind of automatically. Um, and you know, think, of, think of things like um, you know, stage fright or you know, you know, public speaking where a lot of people choke in that situation and it's because they become very self-conscious, like, you know, am I going to screw up or, you know, do what do people think I look funny or whatever it is, you know, you get on stage, everyone's looking at you, you feel the pressure mm. and then suddenly something you can do very easily in other environments, talk, <laughs> you, you can't, suddenly you can't do it anymore. You know, people will freeze um, on stage or with a microphone in front of them. And, you know, it happens in, in athletics as well. So, you know, to get back to your question, um, you know, I tell a story of a, an American triathlete named Siri Lindley, who was, she was considered a shoe-in to qualify for the first U.S. Olympic triathlon team in 2000, but she choked in two qualifying races, did not make the team. But then, you know, she, she realized that she had some work to do. Um, you know, to overcome that vulnerability to choking. Uh, she did that work. Uh, and then she came back the next year in 2001 and won the world world championship. So she, she is sort of the proof that this, this is possible. And the way she did it, you know, becoming less self-conscious was um, her, she worked with her, her new coach, uh, Brett Sutton, to get back in touch with um, simply enjoying the sport you know, the, the pressure for her, she, she felt like she had to achieve at a very high level in order to value herself as a person. You know, all this stuff gets back into, you know, childhood relationships yeah. with parents and stuff. You know, it, there's a, it gets messy. But wherever it comes from, you know, if you, if you, if you have a tendency towards self-consciousness and, you know, perceiving pressure and choking, you probably know it. And the solution is going to be some version of, of that. Um, you know, sort of the opposite of that is, you know, what's called the flow state, right? Where you, your, your consciousness actually just disappears into what you're doing. And something that really fac facilitates that flow state, which kind of corrects, you know, excessive self-consciousness is enjoyment. And that's how Siri did it. She just like, her coach said, you know what, forget that you're even a pro. Like you, yeah. you started doing triathlon because it was fun, because you liked it. So let's start doing that again. Just do the next workout, not, you know, because you have to win a gold medal or a world championship, 
but because you want to do the next workout. You want to be there doing that, even if it's the last workout you ever do. It's an end in itself. And she really embraced that process and it worked for here for her. You know, we often we the tendency to think that like we have a choice. We can either enjoy the sport or we can pursue excellence. That that one comes at the expense of the other. Nothing could be further from the truth. I mean, you can be, you can, if you don't, if you simply don't care about performance, yeah, go ahead and maximize enjoyment for its own sake. But they actually really work together. Like you're never going to commit more to a sport, give yourself more to the process than if you're having the time of your life doing it, you know, because then something that is hard and challenging uh, is also fun for you at the same time. And you want to be, uh, you know, you don't mind the suffering you're experiencing. Um, so yeah, yeah, I'm always, as a coach myself, I'm always encouraging athletes to finding ways to make it the process as fun as possible for that reason. Yeah. Yep. Um, and, and I suppose that's also um, enjoying it is, is part of like having the goals and achieving them and enjoying that process involved in that too, I guess. Would that be right? Yeah. I mean, exactly. You know, there's a tension there because, you know, people who become like Siri too focused on the outcome yeah. can forget the process and they stop enjoying it. But for a lot of athletes, they actually what makes the whole thing exciting for them is that they are pursuing a goal. Like mm -hmm. I'm, I'm very much that way. Um, you know, I'm willing to train really hard for, to achieve, a, um, an ambitious goal. If I don't have a goal, you know, a 15 minute jog feels like an eternity and I'm not sure I, I want to do it. So, <laughs> you know, I, I, I need, I need those goals in order to, it's just more enjoyable for me. Like, and mm. not just, you know, not just the training and stuff, but, my whole life is more enjoyable mm. when I have those goals. Like everything seems to line up when I have something like that out in front of me, but you just have to monitor yourself. Some people can ha have a tendency to obsess. They're so focused on the outcome that they forget the, the journey. Um, mm. So you want to be on guard against that. Yep. That's a fair point. Um, can you explain what the workaround effect is? Yeah. So the, the workaround effect um, you know, we all know, again, colloquially, what, what a workaround is. It's when, you know, you, you sort of have a plan A from, yeah. for like, a, you know, accomplishing a task or achieving a goal, and that path becomes blocked for whatever reason, and you need to come up with a workaround, you know, a way to get to the same place by a different route, essentially. And of course, that's a scenario that happens um, in endurance sports um, all the time. Excuse me. In that particular chapter, I tell the story of a guy named uh, One Arm Willie Stewart, um, who is he? He's called One Arm Willie because he lost an arm in a construction accident when he was just, I think, 18 years old. Um, and he he was a very high level athlete. He was actually a, a rugby player or Australian rules footballer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he was not an endurance athlete. Um, uh, he did, you know, kind of team sports, fall sports. Uh, but later he got into uh, running, cycling and triathlon uh, as a disabled athlete. Actually, he got back into initially, well, he went through a long depression, uh, yeah. which I mean, you're 18, you, you lose no, an arm. Definitely. Understandable. Yeah. But then he decided, well, I'm still a young guy. Like I've got a lot, a lot of life ahead of me. I'm just going to sit here moping. And so he starts to just make a comeback to life by making a comeback as an athlete. Um, 
and and he sort of had you know unfinished business in rugby so before he got into endurance sports he got back in into rugby and by the end of that process you know he told me when i interviewed him that he was a better rugby player with one arm than he had been with two and it was really because a lot of artists will say this too like constraints make you creative you know when you can't do something the easy way mm. you start to um you start to innovate. You start to you start to you know explore ways to develop uh, whatever skill it is that you never would have had to rely on or resort to if the easy way had been possible. So sometimes you know these setbacks. I mean, no one wants to lose an arm, but sometimes you know when 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 the easy way is blocked, it it can become a blessing in disguise. And there are all kinds of examples um, of that. Willie Stewart uh, being one, and he became like a really good runner and triathlete and cyclist, you know, all with, with one arm. Um, and so it's that, that idea that, uh, you know, you can't wish setbacks on yourself, but they're going to happen. And when they do, it's, it's, it's good to recognize that the, the workaround effect is real. Um, and so, you know, you know, as soon as you, as possible, get over the moping phase. Oh, why did this have to happen? and start looking for workarounds. And you have to be sort of open-minded and creative because you're not going to know the alternative route that's going to get you where you want to go initially. Initially, you're just going to be clueless. And that can be stressful in and of itself, just to not know. It's like, well, I, I don't want to quit. I still want to find a way, but I don't know the way. Um, and it becomes this sort of exploratory trial and error process. It's like, well, how do I do it you know, differently than the way I, I was going to? Um, but it's possible, and, and in a way, when, when you get to where you want to go, it's even more rewarding for yeah. having been difficult, you know, because you, you, you didn't end up getting there the way you thought you were going to. Uh, it becomes actually a more fulfilling journey. And I suppose we can almost um, apply that to the current global situation with, you know, lockdowns and lack of races and having to be a little bit more creative with our training and, and what we're training for. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I, I've been, I've really enjoyed, I mean, again, you don't wish these things to happen, but I've, I've enjoyed seeing how, you know, resilient athletes and coaches have been mm. adapting because they really are, you know, I, I've, I've written a bit about this where um, athletes and coaches have found new methodologies or new approaches that again, they tell me I would not have found this if yeah. the pandemic hadn't happened. But guess what? When, you know, when life goes back to normal, if it goes back to normal, <laughs> I'm going to keep this. You know, things that they've that they've discovered, they plan to keep using, even you know, when they could technically go back to the old way of, of doing things. So yeah, that's a great example right there. Yeah, yeah, excellent. In chapter six, you say failure is a gift. Um, that that's sometimes a a bit of pill <laughs> to swallow. How how can we do that? How can we reframe it like that? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, failure is first of all inevitable in yeah. endurance sports. Um, yeah. You know, if if you don't, if you don't, if you never fail, then you're probably you need to set higher goals. <laughs> I mean, again, you can do these sports for any reason you want, but I mean, you know, if you're all competitive, you know, mm -hmm. what your the game is really just about seeing how good you can be. And there's no way to become the best athlete you can be without failing along yeah. the way. So that's, that's number one is, you know, the inevitability of failure. But if you talk to any athlete who actually 
says, you know what, I did realize my full potential, or I got really, really close, they will tell you to a man, to a woman, failure helped me get there. Yeah. You know, like, you know, so they're going to happen regardless, but it's athletes who are actually able to use their failures, who, who fulfill their potential or fulfill most of the most of their potential or fulfill it most quickly. Um, so, you know, it's that, that old expression, the, uh, the obstacle is the way, um, where, um, you know, the, the, the story I tell in that book is, is of Cadell Evans, the, the cyclist who, he has the distinction of being the, the winner of the Tour de France who lost the Tour more times than anyone else <laughs> before he won it. So he, yeah. he lost it, I think, seven times. Mm. Where he won it in his seventh or eighth Tour. Like I said, I wrote this book a while ago. But point being, he, and he was yes. one of these people, he, he was like, he was considered destined from mm. the earliest age to win the yes. Tour. Like he was just this prodigal talent. He had, yes, you know, so I, I used to actually race mountain bikes with him when he was younger right on okay yeah. so i don't need to tell you yeah. but like you know, he was like the golden boy it's like mm. you know you know keep it keep an eye on this one mm. um he's gonna win the tour one day and finally you know he did he, he did mountain biking first and kicked butt yeah um and then goes into the, the tour and then you know he loses then he comes well i'm still young it was just my first tour he comes back loses again he's improving though so it's like mm. well next year that's the year comes back loses again and then it, it's like then he's not so young anymore yeah. And then he's no longer actually improving. You know, he gets up to second place. He's on the podium, but then he starts going back the other way. And, mm -hmm. you know, people started to write him off, but then he ends up winning anyway. Um, mm -hmm. And for him, you know, the, the point I make in, in, through his story is that, you know, he had, he had every ingredient. Uh, you know, he had the talent. He had the experience. He had the resources. He, had, uh, he, had, he, was, he was only missing one thing. And that really was that little extra bit of resilience. And the reason he didn't have that is because he had everything else. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you know, he, he, he had to sort of earn the resilience because all he ever did was win. Yeah. <laughs> you know, he, he just started off. And, and, and so there's, you know, unless you're truly absolutely born with it in some way and res with resilience, I don't know how that happens. Like mm. you, you have to, you have to experience, you have to fail. Yeah. And, and, and the real difference um, when you dig deep into his whole story and, and look at, okay, what was different? Because was he actually a better athlete, you know, when he finally won, you know, in his mid-30s? Yeah. Uh, probably not. Um, but, but he had, um, he had what, what I refer to in the book as, well, actually a psychologist coined the phrase, uh, sweet disgust. So it was like, I also described it as the fed up feeling. Yeah. So sometimes like failure can make you, it can either break you or it can make you angry and and anger can really properly channeled anger can be performance enhancing where you're just like you know what i'm not even scared of losing anymore because i'm tired of losing like you know like i'm tired of feeling like i'm pissed off like this time i'm gonna get it done like that was his attitude and that was the difference maker for him and he, and he had failure to thank for that like he wouldn't have won it the seventh time if he hadn't failed the first the first six and you know, failure is unpleasant. It's disappointing, you know, by, by definition. But if you, again, if you could, if you just recognize that these things are true, uh, you can sort of quickly, you know, sort of get over the disappointment and realize, oh, there's an opportunity here. Like, you know, when, when this, when my story is written, I could have this failure to thank for my ultimate success. Mm, yep. 
Yeah, and I think we can also learn so many lessons from, from our failures too. If yeah, we really sometimes, sometimes very specific lessons. Mm. Yeah, that's like, right. All right, I failed because of this. I'm not going to fail for the same reason again. You know, yeah. I'm going to address that specific reason I failed. Yes, very yeah. much so. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and it certainly does build resilience, that's for sure. Um, in chapter eight, the, in, uh, the, sorry, the answer is inside you, talks about perfectionism and how this can lead to training and racing errors if it's misplaced. Um, a lot of you know, athletes consider themselves to be type A personalities, which is inherent in perfectionism. So how, how does that work? Isn't it important to be a perfectionist to make sure that you do everything right? How can it turn against us? Yeah, great question. Um, you know, there, there's some pretty cool research um, that I, I delved into again in, mm. in, um, in writing. Uh, I have another book coming out, kind of a follow-up to, to How Bad You Want It. And I delved into this, the research on perfectionism, and it really is a double-edged sword. And we mm. kind of know that through our own experience. It's mm. like, kind of, it seems to help sometimes and, and hurt other times. And, that, and that, the research really bears that out. Um, so, you know, it, it, it depends a little bit on the individual like the, the, the specific style of perfectionism they have. Um, because, you know, one, you know, one type of perfectionism and the type that is really more helpful is when you have sort of a mastery mindset uh, where your, your, your goal is to just master a skill, you know, like to, just to be as good at it as you can possibly be. And, you know, sort of trusting that that, that will take you to your goals or will you know, result in winning. But the focus is actually more on the mastery than on the winning. Um, the other style of perfectionism that is not as helpful is really fear of failure. Um, and that is, that is fear-based. Um, and that, that can be, um, you know, fear very often is self-sabotaging actually. Um, it, you know, it, it kind of it just sort of tightens you, you know, you're not, you know, there should be what you're athlete, all athletes compete at their best when there's like, they're a little bit loose, you know, they're, they're, they're serious, but they're also playing, you know, they kind of have a, a light hold on their, on their goals. Um, and that style of perfectionism where like, I couldn't, I can't possibly lose. I can't, that's the end of the world. If I lose, uh, that's not as healthy. It's not, I mean, it's not as pleasant a state to be in, but it's also, you're probably not going to actually perform as well. Um, so that mastery mindset is like a, a, a better way to be perfectionistic as an athlete. Yeah, so it's, it's about channel, uh, channeling it correctly so that, it, yeah, we don't overtrain, which is often a, overtraining certainly. I mean, it can lead to race, choking in races, I guess, but also it can lead to overtraining and those sorts of uh, training areas, would you say, too? Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, the, 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 the narrative focus of that chapter is the legendary Paul Anubi Fraser, mm. um, you know, eight-time winner of the Ironman World Championship. And, you know, she was unbeatable, um, you know, at the, height, at the height of her powers, um, you know, in, in her prime. I mean, she was like, I want to say she, I describe it in the opening of the chapter. I, I think she finished something like 14th overall in the iron like oh it's only only the best 13 men <laughs> in ironman yeah. racing could beat her like i mean she was so far ahead of all, all the other women but she sort of in a way she threw it away she threw it away be, because of perfectionism she even though she was so much better than her real competition um 
she she still lived in fear uh, that they were going to catch up to her. Like, and, and so she ended up messing up her formula. Um, I refer to it to get back to your overtraining uh, uh, comment. I refer to it as the hard work security blanket, where yeah. it's actually a, a kind of laziness that that a lot of a lot of very driven athletes can fall into. And you're, and you're like, well, how can hard work be lazy? It's actually it's mentally lazy. It's intellectually lazy because. Uh, success in endurance sports requires, it's not all one thing. It requires that you use the full toolkit. And when people try to make hard working harder, the, the solution to everything, it's actually a kind of laziness. They, they, you know, if, if they have a, a bad workout or, or a bad race, they're like, oh, I just need to work harder. Yeah. If, they, if they start to feel bad in training, oh, I just need to work harder. So they, they want that one thing to be the answer to whatever is holding them back, whatever the problem might be. That's lazy. You know what I mean? Like you're not, you're not willing to do the intellectual work to actually, you know, come up with a balanced approach to getting better that uses, you know, the, the full toolkit. Um, so that's a trap I see athletes fall into all the time that, that hard. Oh, Hang on a second, you've just dropped out. You just, I just missed that last bit that you said. It's a trap they fall into. Yes, the, the, the hard work security blanket, yeah. as I call it. Yeah, you, you have to work hard, but most endurance athletes are willing to do that. It's like yeah. The question is, are you willing to do the other things? Yeah, yep, that's right. All right, so um, um, many of my listeners are, you know, ultra runners, <clears throat> and so they often train alone. But you also talk about the group effect. So how, how is that important and why should ultra runners maybe take more notice of that one? Yeah. Uh, you, know, you know, human beings are, are social animals yeah. and, um, you know, we behave differently in groups than we do alone, yeah. including as, in the athletic context. Um, and uh, that, that book, uh, uh, that book, that chapter of the book um, focuses on uh, the 2010 World Cross Country Championships, in which the American men's team uh, knocked off mighty Kenya, who they were they used to win it almost every year. They actually still do. Um, the Americans finished second, uh, silver. So it's Ethiopia, Ethiopia first, the Americans second, and then Kenya third. Like really, where I mean, we really celebrated here, American running fans. Um, and so uh, I get into the whole. Uh, the, you know, the rise of, of Kenya's dominant, dominance in endurance running. And a lot of people, they just sort of, you know, to get back to intellectual laziness, they say, oh, they have a genetic advantage. And, you know, when you, when you scratch the surface and look at the science, it's really hard to back that up. And, and also, you, if, you, if you look at, like, just uh, sport, all the, the full panoply of different sports, I mean, there's a million different sports out there um, all over the world. And, and most major sports are actually dominated by one, two or three countries, you know, like, you know, like, like take men's football, you know, either Germany or Brazil wins the world cup every, every four years. It's like, well, is that a genetic advantage? And what are the genes that Brazilians and Germans <laughs> only on the men's side? Uh, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. so there's so many other factors, most of them social and cultural that explains mm. national sporting dominance. And, and what, you know, so, you know, America used to be very dominant in, in running, like in the 1970s. And, and then we kind of lost it. And people in this country who really cared about start, sort of, you know, getting back to the top, 
they, they questioned, you know, why, why are the Kenyans so good? And they wanted the real answer, not the easy answer. And what they, what they found is that they trained in groups. Um, I mean, there's more than one thing, you know, they, a lot of them, you know, certain tribes, they live at high elevation, you know, they, they're born and raised at high elevation. The diet is conducive. There aren't a lot of other sports to choose from. Uh, it's a poor country. So, um, you know, it's one of the only ways to get rich. <laughs> so it's, it's very motivating. But that, that group factor seems to be uh, to loom large. Um, that, you know, by training in groups, they sort of, they raise, they're able to raise themselves to a higher level. Like everyone gets a little bit better by virtue of being in that, in that context. And again, um, research science really backs this up where there have been uh, studies to show, for example, that um, athletes have a higher pain tolerance after doing a workout as a group. Uh, then if they, if they do exactly the same performance test on their own, and then their pain tolerance is tested, it's lower. And that's because when you, it's called behavioral synchronies. So when you do the same thing that other people are doing at the same time, your brain releases endorphins that actually mask pain to, to a certain, they're natural, you know, biological, biochemical painkillers. Um, so, you know, you can, you can, you, it's almost, almost like a performance enhancing drug it's just, you know, training and racing with other athletes. And it's not just competition, it's cooperation as well. It's both. You benefit from both. So, and that's, you know, if you're human, even if, like, I'm, I'm kind of an introvert, um, but, um, you know, I've experienced it too. Like three summers ago, I, I spent the entire summer training with a team of professional runners. And at the end, at the very end of it, I had the best marathon I've ever had at, at the age of 46. Um, so, I, you know, I, I know it even just from anecdotal experience that um, it's fine. I do most of my training alone, but just know that um, you, you're probably leaving some performance on the table if you never train with other athletes. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. Um, in Chapter 10, you talk about how our internal expectations enhance our racing. You know, like rather than going and thinking, oh, I'm, you know, I'm slow, I can't do well, those sorts of things. Um, you know, how do we balance our expectations? Yeah, I mean, uh, that's another thing that, that most of us probably recognize from, from just life experience is that expectations tend to, tend to be self-fulfilling. Mm -hmm. uh, so when you expect the best, you get the best. Uh, when you expect the worst, you, <laughs> you get the worst. Um, so, you know, you can sort of uh, take advantage of that by consciously manipulating your own expectations. Um, you know, like you can do that with goal setting, um, but, but also in, in other ways. And again, the whole idea is just to, to get the best. I call it benign self-manipulation, where like you, you, um, you toy with the contents of your own mind in such a way to set yourself up for... Um, success. Um, so, for example, there's, uh, and again, there's science to, to, to back up this notion. Um, there's, a, there's a study done with ultra runners um, where they measured before all these runners were going to do, um, I believe it was a French ultra, ultra trail race uh, with a very high failure rate where um, more, like more than half the field failed to finish each year. Um, and they uh they among they, they measured a lot of different psychological factors but one of them they measured was uh um expectation of finishing 
And, you know, as you might expect, those who, um, who had a stronger expectation of finishing were more likely to complete the distance. Even though in the group as a whole, a majority failed to finish, those who had the highest expectation of finishing, uh, it, you know, it, 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 it fulfilled itself. You know, the, the limit on that is you can't, you can't get yourself to, to believe something you don't actually believe. Like, you have to truly believe it. You, like, if you're lying to yourself, it's not going to work because you actually know you're lying to yourself. So in the training process, a, a, huge, a huge purpose of the training process is to build your expectations, to develop, like, basically to prove to yourself that you can achieve the things you want to achieve. So as a coach, um, that's what I want. Like, I, I don't want to just physically prepare an athlete to achieve a goal. I want to give them experiences that, that actually teach them, that show them that they, that they can do what they want to do. Because if they bring that to the starting line as well, uh, you know, they're standing there not just physically capable of doing it, but knowing in their minds that they can do it and that, that can make all the difference. Yeah, I guess it's part of the um, trust the training so that you know that if you've done the training, you can, your expectation of completing is, is that much higher. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's like if, if you know you can do it, even if it's hard, yeah. there's, there's no substitute for that, just like just knowing it. <laughs> exactly, yeah. Now, in uh, Chapter 11, you talk about passion knows no age. What are you talking about there? Yeah, well, you know, as, as an aging endurance <laughs> athlete, you know, this is... <laughs> I know. <laughs> But, you know, it's interesting when I was, you know, I, I mentioned I started running when I was quite young. Um, mm. I'll, I'll turn 50 next year. So I, I've been at it for a long time. And, you know, when I was sort of in my supposed prime year, you know, late 20s and into my 30s, I used to wonder, um, you know, when I start slowing down, what's because I, I was so motivated to improve. It's what it was all about for me. It's like, I, I want to get faster. I want to get faster. It's like, well, what happens when I'm not getting faster anymore? Will I just quit and start golfing and instead but <laughs> no you know, start ultras <laughs> yeah exactly yeah well actually that did happen yeah. <laughs> but um but you know in, in that story uh, in that chapter i tell the story of ned Overend, who was uh, yeah. a, a great well he was a a multidisciplinary endurance athlete yeah. but he, he was a world champion uh, american um mountain biker mm. and then later in his career this uh this new sport discipline came along off-road triathlon and he's kind of like decided to just give it a go. And he ends up becoming at the age of 43, the world champion in off-road triathlon. So just, yeah, yeah, there's a mountain biking part and that's what he made his name doing before, but still, I mean, he had to swim and run as yeah. well. He was 43 um, yeah. and he came back the next year and won again. Um, and I, I, I believe he was like the oldest world champion in any major endurance sport and you see more and more of that now like yeah. uh, athletes are truly uh you know sort of redefining the possible um what was it uh tommy i'm gonna blank on the last name but irish runner who he's 61 years old and he just ran a one hour and 11 minute half marathon oh wow no i didn't know yeah. about that <laughs> yeah no he was a world-class runner yeah in his 20s uh, he's oh, wow. not a johnny come lately but still i mean just to think about how little he has slowed down in 40 years it, yeah. it's, in, it's incredible um it's and amazing. you see you know stuff like this is happening all over the place now 
Um, and if you look at what's going on with these athletes, because it doesn't happen to everyone, like not mm. every endurance athlete ages equally well. Mm. <laughs> um, and, and, a, and a huge factor in the ones who do, who are able to sort of extend their prime, um, you know, past 40, uh, and sometimes well, well past 40, are, are those who remain very passionate for the sport. So they still love it. The, the mm. hunger is still there. The fire is still burning. You see that in example after example. And in, in, in the book, uh, in that chapter, I, I look at some of the research on, longe on longevity. So just outside of the athletic context, like people who age well just as human beings, you see exactly the same thing. Um, you know, people who um, really are, are passionate about, no one's really passionate about life. They're passionate about things in life. Yeah. And, and, the, and people who have, they just remain really attached to being alive. They're anchored to it by something that they do or, mm -hmm. you know, it could be sort of more of a relationship-based thing, whatever it is, like whatever your outlet for your passion is, like if you're able to continually stoke that and find ways um, to keep that thing vibrant uh, and flourishing as you get older, um, the aging process is just not going to uh, move as quickly uh, in you as it will in other people. And I mean, if you decide you want to move on and, and golf instead of <laughs> running, I mean, that, that's fine. But, but for me, like I, you know, I, I still love running and I want, I, I want, I want, I still have that competitive mindset. I still want, I'm wired the same way. I want to see what I can do. And I have found just in my own, you know, training and, and racing that um, finding ways, athletes often don't realize how much freedom they have to do it however they want to. Like Ned Overin, you know, the guy I focus on in this book, like one of the ways he kept his uh, hunger alive was actually to just get away from the sport to a certain degree. Like mm. you know, he, he was not a super heavy trainer. Like he would take time off. He would just like, he would prioritize other things sometimes. Uh, like he, he, he liked to maintain balance and you would think, Oh, that's the opposite of passion. No. Like by just like, he, that was his way of not exhausting his passion for the sport to have other things going on in his life, just to have it like be yes, an important thing, but, but not the only thing in his life. But for other people, the formula might be a little different. You know, for me, I find ways to mix my writing together with my, my training. So you know, I come up with projects that I just think, oh, this is the coolest thing ever. And I'll get to write about it. Like, you know, that, that fake pro runner experience I mentioned briefly a few years ago, that was exactly that. Like it was something I wanted to do as a runner, but I turned it into this writing thing where I could share this experience of being a middle-aged fake professional runner that that just made it um, exciting and thrilling for me to yeah. do, and it ended up benefiting my running and being something cool to write about and share with other people. Yeah, I, I do. I've always felt that it's really important to have a passion, and I mean, obviously, we're biased and, and we think it should be running, but obviously, it doesn't really uh -huh. matter, <laughs> you know. <clears throat> so, chapter twelve is called "Is It Worth It?" Is this uh, this is talking about you know. Uh, uh, from my understanding of, of finding your why, because certainly when you're deep in an ultra and, and that's sometimes why people DNF is they haven't got a significant why to keep going. Is that kind of also part of it as well? Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly it. Um, you know, the title of the book is how bad do you want it? Um, mm. 
And, you know, you know so that, that's kind of a recurring refrain in the book. And yeah. you know, the idea is that when, you know, because endurance racing is hard, you have, you, you have that moment, you know, in almost every race where, you know, that, that thought just comes unbidden to you in the, in the depths of the pain cave, like, why am I doing this? <laughs> you know, yeah. and, you know, so th there's almost like, you know, this, this shouting match between two competing voices in your head, like, you know, one part of you just doesn't want it that bad and, and doesn't want to suffer. But another part of you is the reason you're there in the first place. Mm. And, and you, and really you want that voice to win the shouting match. It's like, well, how do you, how do you get that to happen? And really, you know, kind of the way to look at it or the way I look at it is like, you know, your reason for, for wanting to, to suffer however much it's, it's, it's going to be necessary to, to give your best effort. It, the stakes have to be as close to life and death as possible. Like it's not literally life. like you're, you can't, your life doesn't depend on <laughs> on giving it all you've got in races, but whatever your your most central motivation is, the closer it is to that, the better. Like so, people who have more like you know sort of like shallower motivations, like well, I'm here because my friend talked me into it. Well, okay, <laughs> <laughs> that's only going to take you so far. Yeah. Or it's like you know I'm running a hundred miles because I wanted to lose five kilos. It's like, well, <laughs> the race you're wise, I reckon. <laughs> <laughs> Why not just not eat for a week? Yeah. That's actually easier. That's easier. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, and, and again, part of what I love about this is just um, how disparate people's motivations are. Like, we don't all have the same motivational profile. Um, you know, for me, you know, I have more than one, but a big one for me was. Um, I, I wanted, you know, I, I quit running as, you know, in, in the end of high school because I couldn't take the suffering and I didn't run for a while. And when I got back into it, one of my big motivators was to change how I saw myself as a man. Like I, I, I saw myself as mentally weak and I, I wanted to change that. And that was a very powerful motivator. Like I wanted to use running as a vehicle to become a stronger human being and, and to be able to sort of look at myself in the mirror and say, you know what, <laughs> you're strong. Um, and I, so I had to prove that to myself and it was incredibly motivating. Um, and, but you know, it's different for, for different people. Like I, I know I'm not a parent myself, but I know some parents, they're really fueled by wanting to set a certain kind of example to their children. And that fires them up more than anything else. You know, for other people, it's more of like, um, even like a spiritual thing or a connection to a higher power, like that's their big driver, whatever it is, like find it, you know, for yourself and connect with it. Um, not just throughout the training, but especially in those, those moments when you need that, you know, that you need that why as kind of a lifeline to get you through, you know, crucial moments and events. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that it's probably, it, I would, you know, very important to, to consider all of that before, before the race and have that ready, ready to go. Exactly so, yes. Yeah. Now you talked um, earlier about your new book and uh, that's called The Comeback Quotient. And you said it's like a, a, a part two or a follow on from this book. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, definitely similar themes. And, you know, it mines and it delves into, you know, uh, endurance sports psychology. Um, so the question I wanted to address in that book is, you know, 
even as even as fans of sport, we all love an amazing comeback story, right? Mm. Um, and you see them in all different sports um, when someone has like a major setback or failure or, or, or what have you, and then comes back and achieves like a, a thrilling and exciting victory. Um, it's fun to watch, but if you're an athlete yourself, you also want to be capable of these things because we all find ourselves in situations where we need to make a comeback. We need to come back from something. Um, and, and don't you want, as an athlete yourself, don't you want to be one of the ones who's, who can pull off a, you know, a, a feat that makes other people say, wow, you know, and inspires a, a, other people. And so th this book explores the question, like, what is it? What's the special sauce that, that the athletes who, who do the, who, who achieve the most amazing comebacks have like, and really the, the question I pose at the outset is like, are they all, you know, there's all different varieties. Like on the surface, no two comebacks look the same. Um, but you know, the question I pose is like underneath, are they actually all, all doing the same thing? Are they all going through the same uh, fundamental process? And I believe they, they are. Um, and so that's what I, you know, it's very similar in that the book, it, it mixes storytelling with science. Um, yeah. And, but this one, the complaint I got from how bad you want it was that it wasn't quite practical enough. It, it's oh, definitely okay. like, well, it's a little, it, it's definitely more inspirational. It's not like, mm -hmm. it's not like a step one, step two, step three yeah, sort of. Sure, sure. Um, the comeback quotient is a little bit more like that. It's a little bit, um, hopefully it's inspiring as well, but it gets mm -hmm. a little bit into the more the nuts and bolts of, I, I sort of coach the reader through the process of, of becoming what I call, the term I, I use is ultra-realist. So the, uh, the people who pull off the amazing comebacks are ultra-realists, and it's a book about how to become one yourself. Well, that sounds um, really interesting, and I, I can't wait to, to read that. And um, hopefully you can come back and we can have a chat about that book too. I would love to. Excellent. All righty. Well, so we were obviously talking about how bad do you want it? And once again, I can highly recommend that book. I've loved, I've loved reading it. I bought that quite a few years ago, actually. So it's well read. Um, thank you so much for once again, taking the time to chat with me. And um, I'll once again, put your details in the show notes so people can follow you and, and see what you're doing and those sorts of things. Thanks. I really enjoyed talking to you. No worries. Thanks so much. Bye. So what did you think? I loved it how he had an amazing athlete as an example for each mindset. This makes it not only an informative read, but a highly entertaining one too. Next week's interview is one I'm very excited about. I chat with Lazarus Lake about how he comes up with such interesting race concepts and what he thinks it will take for a female to complete the fun run or even the full race at Barclay, if it's possible at all. Make sure you tune in for that one. Have a great week of training.